Hello, and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean for Liberal Arts for Southern New Hampshire University's online history programs. Now, we launched Season 2 with as much fanfare as a couple guys with no budget could muster a couple months ago. And then summer happened, and we took a few weeks off in July, but we're back again for now. Anyways, today, Jimmy and I are catching up with Jennifer Bryant, who I last spoke with in our third episode, way back in 2017. In that episode, we finally settled on a podcast title, Filibustering History, which conjured images, at least in my mind, of plundering and pillaging and invading and gumming up the works of legislative bodies. I still have a soft spot for that title and may resurrect it at some point in the future. But when we spoke with Jen last time, she was a preservation compliance officer for the Colorado State Historical Preservation Office. In the last four years, she's found a new job with the National Park Service where she continues to work to preserve our historical sites and landmarks. In this episode, we discuss Jen's new job, but we also take a whole bunch of detours to discuss different aspects of history, including environmental history, the history of the American West, historical memory, and the future history that will be written about the global pandemic of 2020 and 2021. Uh, So Jen, thanks for coming on the show yet again. So can you tell us what you've been up to since last time we talked? Thanks for having me. Uh, I've been doing a little bit different work than I was when I first spoke with you. Uh, About three years ago, I actually made the transition of moving from working for the state of Colorado to I now work for the National Park Service. So I went from working for a state agency to working for a federal agency. Um, I still work with Section 106, which is what I did at the state, um, but now I work with it from a slightly different angle. So I work with helping the Park Service and the different units um, within my region figure out what they need to do to comply with Section 106 in the National Historic Preservation Act. So are you still in the same, because you were in Colorado before, right? So are you still in the same same general area? I am. Yeah, my office went from being downtown Denver to being out in Lakewood, close to the Denver Federal Center. So the National Park Service has a regional office that's located just west of Denver. um, And we work for the eight states in our region that used to be known as the Intermountain region and is now known as regions six, seven, and eight. Um, So we- (laughs) Much more descriptive. Much more descriptive, uh, (laughs) much easier to understand. And it, it, we find it funny because we also, six, seven, and eight encompass the states of Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, Colorado, and Wyoming. But we also serve Montana, which is split into partially in Region 5 and partially in Region 9. Um, But we just left that out of our title. So we we let the other regions have that. (laughs) We don't want Montana. No. Well, we still serve Montana. We just don't uh, illustrate the fact that they are technically not in our the named titles that we we support, (laughs) so to speak. You serve Montana, but you don't claim Montana because nobody exactly. can claim Montana. Yes, we Rocking serve Montana, but we don't claim it. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Montana will not be claimed. Montana will go. not be claimed. Um, Big sky. So that's that's super interesting. So you're not for your um, your branch of the NPS. You're not the historian, but you're the historic preservation officer. I'm not actually. Oh, not. I am okay. still technically a historian, um, and. But my, my official title, which will be surprising and something you would never think of, is actually Facility Management Compliance Specialist. 
or a compliance coordinator, depending on who, who you're speaking with. Um, so I actually work in the facilities management branch of the National Park Service. Um, so I work with all of the facilities staff at the parks, but I also work with all of the cultural resources staffs at the park so that we know what needs to be done from the cultural resources side when we're looking at projects to rehabilitate buildings or if we find water systems that need work or if we need to shore up um, parking areas or those lovely points of the road that you pull off on to have a be beautiful view of somewhere, occasionally those need work. Um, the road systems, things like that. So we're trying to ensure that all of the resources are treated appropriately um, so it's kind of a blending of the two. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's, I think it's something that a lot of people might not think about when they think about national parks. They think about, you know, wide open spaces. They think about, you know, if anything, um, like fire prevention and how do you maintain the natural spaces. But a lot of our natural parks have historic buildings and um, historic resources that actually need to be preserved under very specific guidelines. Like um, I'm well, I'm, I'm sure they're probably the same, like NEPA and NIPA, like NEPA and NHPA. Yeah, like these very specific codes that you just have to understand in order to know how to maintain and preserve the, the historical um, elements of those spaces. Exactly. And that's actually exactly what I do. I work primarily with the National Historic Preservation Act, but I also work hand in hand with our environmental staff, making sure that when we say compliance is done or compliance is complete for a project, that means both the cultural but also the natural resources. So compliance with National Environmental Policy Act, compliance with in, uh, Endangered Species Act, all of those other factors that I think as historians we don't necessarily think about as often, but has has become kind of second nature to me to ask, have you done your cultural resources and your natural resources compliance? Have you thought about the birds plus the buildings? Um, and trying to ensure that they actually take all of those factors into account. So it gets both that that beautiful vista that you were talking about, but also, you know, the historic ranch structure that's, that's across the road as well. Yeah. Yeah, I just read a book recently. Actually, I had to write a review for it for HNET. Um, Oh God, I'm drawing a blank on the title. I keep looking off to the side because I think I have it on this shelf, but I can't locate it at the moment. <laughs> well, but anyway, it's... video. We know where your books are located, so it wasn't. <laughs> right. Yeah, the, the books are that way. If you're looking <laughs> for them. Um, the the uh, but the book was. It's interesting because it's about the development of the Point Reyes um, natural seashore, national mm -hmm. seashore, whatever the full title of it is. Um, you know, yeah. right just north of Jimmy. And it's the, the book is interesting because it's talking about how much work goes into making things look natural because it's, um, you know, Point Reyes, you know, using this specific example, Point Reyes has been farmed for generations. There's So there's been all kinds of human activity happening there. And so basically what they have to do in the administration of this seashore is they want to preserve it, but they have to decide you know, at what point in its evolution are we going to preserve it? So is it going to be as of 1800, as of 1900, as of 1950? What is the, basically they have to pick a year in time and say, we're going to, we're going to try to preserve it at that year <laughs> because we, 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 that's just how it works. Because if you don't 
if you don't maintain it, it's going to change. Things are going, you know, things are going to grow in the wrong places. There's going to be animals in the wrong places. It's not going to, it's not going to look natural with, that people expect it to look like when they go there. Yeah, and that and area so right it's now a big, is a hotbed of controversy. Uh, yeah, because, I, of the, yeah. because of the elk and extending the farm leases, and it's mm-hmm. exactly it what you said. Where do you start historically to? to view it as historical. So do you extend the farm leases or since those are more recent than the elk, do you push the farmers off? Like, um, yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting book. So yeah, kind of the balancing the cultural resources with the natural resources, because yeah, on the one hand, you don't want to knock down all, all evidence of human activity because there has been human activity there, but at the same time, you don't want, you know, ugly rundown barns to get in the way of the, of the view of the trees and all that. So it's, it's a very intricate balancing act and it kind of made, you know, it, it makes the, um, it, it also talked about, you know, there's, there's always, people always make mistakes when they're, when they make, when they try to achieve that balance because no one can achieve that balance perfectly. And so, but it's, it was an interesting uh, book and it made me really think differently about the, about the NPS specifically because they're the ones kind of in charge of trying to figure out how do we do this? How do we achieve this balance? Because it's very difficult. And it's a balance that the Park Service and, and other agencies especially have been really juggling since their, their beginning. And it's something that I think each generation looks at slightly differently. So, you know, if you asked my grandparents what they wanted to see versus my parents versus myself versus my nieces and nephews, we all have a slightly different answer. So what's right and what's wrong. There's not really a right or a wrong, so to speak. It's finding that balance that you were speaking about and making sure that the public understands that's what the goal is, is to find the balance and find something and ensure that those spaces remain as true to themselves as they can, Mm -hmm. as well as true to what we envision them to be, which they may or may not match. And that's something we try to then share with the public is that maybe this doesn't match your viewpoint, what you were expecting, but here's why it doesn't. Here, here's what you haven't been exposed to maybe necessarily in the past, that, that aspect of history or that aspect of the landscape that you didn't know existed. So let's share that with you. Let's make that the talking point is why is this important versus that view you had coming into your mind, that grand vista off the of, you know, say Grand Canyon. And I say that just because I was there two years ago. Um, and, and what that point was, well, why is that significant? Other than to us as a beautiful view, historically, why was it significant to the tribes that came first? To all of those individuals that came between the earliest tribes and now? What, what's changed? What hasn't and let's tell that full story as much as possible. But again, that's that balancing act that you never know if you can make sure to catch the right tone, the right balance, um, and, and what needs to be shared versus the entirety of the story. Because visitors don't have you know, a year to spend with us as we try <laughs> and tell them all about the history of this site that we right. could really do but they don't have that much time. So how do we share that information in a way that is meaningful to them as well as, as meaningful to the place? Yeah. It's finding, I think you, <clears throat> I like the way you framed it around not only generational, but even 
regional and what is your mental model of the world and what what is your your view are you a conservationist are you a preservationist do you believe in human use of resources or do you believe in a return to a natural state depending on what your views are and where you would like to see the location go um it's totally going to it's totally going to influence the policies that you support so the farmers up in uh point reyes and along the seashore i mean we're not talking about you know, 10 year leases, and now they want to extend them. We're talking about leases that are over 100 years old. So for them, that is history. I mean, in the context of the US, 100 years is a long, a long history of at least European um, settlement in on the continent, right? So if you're talking about over 100 years of personal family history, and leasing land for a farm, and then this idea switches or you live in an area where people are moving more toward natural state and remove human, any vestige of, of human uh, settlement because you want it to go back to some, some ideal natural state, which may or may not be a true vision of what it is anyway. Right. Um, How do you bring those conversations together and how do you find something that probably doesn't make everybody happy, but is a, a good approach to finding a healthy balance in the area? It's, that's right. It's interesting you brought that up, Rob, because I was just reading an article about, I think they reached a tentative agreement about leases last week, but it's, it is a, it is a flashpoint in this, this conversation of what should the park preserve? What is the role of the park and the federal government? What rights do people have that have been holding leases on this land for the longest time? Well, and I think it also, you brought up a great point about regionally the significance, because a lot of what we've, run into in the West is significantly different from what they run into on the East because land ownership is so different. Uh, if you look at ownership of the vast expanse of land in the West, a very large amount of that is owned by the federal government and across a variety of agencies. Whereas in the East, there aren't those large swaths of land um, that we find out here in the West. And so you're exactly right. What What's significant in one area may not be in the other, and and taking that into account and understanding the nuances of of those areas and the significance of those places for the individuals that have been on that land, that's, I think, always going to be the challenge that we face and always the balance that we have to try and find. But I think it was, I like the way that you put that. It's definitely, there's a very distinct regional difference Um, in the way that people view land and use of the land in addition to that generational difference. Yeah. And it's, um, it's something that a lot of folks like on the East coast don't really understand because they didn't grow up with it. But out in the West, I'm from California. Jimmy's kind of adopted California. You've been in Colorado. So we've all kind of been in the, the context of the West for significant chunks of our lives. And so we kind of understand that the the concept of these vast open spaces that aren't owned by individual people there, it, it's just, and so it, it, it's just a kind of a different mentality, different view of, of the land because yeah, along that in the East, I mean, Ohio now where there's very little is federal, uh, federal owned. Uh, and so it's mostly a private owned. And so it's, it is a very different viewpoint of, of how you use land. Um, because out west, you know, there's a there's this conception that it's empty, and that 
you know, anybody should be able to do anything with it because it's not being used right now, which is kind of the argument that's been used against Native Americans since, since the beginning of European colonization. They're not using it right. And so therefore we should be able to go in and do what we want with it. Um, whereas in the East, since it's privately owned, you know, you, there's less less of a sense of I can go do something on that land because I'm, I am, you know, encroaching on someone else's property. It just, you don't necessarily have the same view out in the West, uh, which leads to things like the Sagebrush Rebellion and the, uh, the the people taking over the parkland in uh, Oregon a few a couple of years ago. I forget their names; doesn't matter. But <laughs> yeah, a whole different view of, of of who owns the land, who who has who's entitled to use the land. Um, it's a very different viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. What are your what are your rightful what are your rights to the land, right? And right. it kind of changes in the West too. I mean, in the East, you have longer, like you said, longer established ownership of land. You have more privately owned land. But even in the West, a lot of the privately owned land has only been privately owned for a certain amount of time. And it was it was government subsidized to get that land in the first place, you know? And but now there's this idea that like government should stay out of everything, especially that whole, you know, the the idea that rose, um, especially during the Reagan era and the whole Sunbelt about keep the government out of this when it's very short term remember very short-term memory of history because the government was also the reason that you were able to move on to this and get this land. So it's, it's a really odd relationship between federal land, federal regulations and, and private citizenship in, in the West that we never really thought about in the East. Yeah. And from a historiographical perspective, using the dreaded historiography word <laughs> that gets us into the, uh, uh, takes us to the whole new Western history with Patricia Nelson Limerick and uh, <laughs> and the, and the the other historians in the eighties that kind of brought about the idea that no no the 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 West is not the era the 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 place of individual rugged individualism this is the place where the government basically did everything everything that happened out there is a result of government intervention and from you know pushing away the Native Americans through handing out leases of land to people through building the railroads all of it was government backed and so we. Yeah, we've arrived at the '80s in many ways. There, we've got the, we've got the Reagan, yeah. <laughs> we've got the Sagebrush Rebellion, we've got the Reagan years, and we've got the New Western History, folks. So, yeah, we're welcome to the '80s, everybody. We brought this right yes. back to history. Yeah, it's historiography. Well, and and uh, Patty Limerick was actually the state historian for Colorado for a while um, mm-hmm. when I was at History Colorado. So it was a very interesting. Um, ch- I won't say change because the previous state historian. Um, was also from Colorado and saw the world in the West a little bit differently. So they had that Western viewpoint of having grown up in the West and spent a significant amount of their career focused on Western studies. But you're exactly right. When you look at the West, we have kind of come full circle around to the 80s and the change of view of how we view the history of the West and the significance of the West and the treatment of individuals who have been here um, or who have come in and how we how we address that. And I think it's going to be constantly evolving, to be quite honest with you, based on continuing conversations and pulling in those groups that have not had their voice heard in the same way that those who are of European descent and have come in and and owned the land in more modern terms of owning land um, versus those who had been here before and have as much or significantly longer history on the land, but weren't part of the more recent discussions on on how things evolve and how 
places are treated. So I think that's going to be a constant evolution that we are going to see, I think, at least through our lifetimes, if not continuing on beyond. Um, and I look forward to that. I think that is something that we need to have. I think those are voices that need to be heard and should be heard. And I'm, I love the fact that we're starting to see that more um, than we have in the past. Yeah, I think it was just last week, there was, I think it was the American Society for Environmental History. They put on a uh, a virtual, since all the conferences were canceled, they've been putting on panels on uh, online. And just last week, they had one with Patty Limerick and a couple of the other new Western historians where they're like, okay, should we just get around to calling it the old Western history now that it's 40 years old at this <laughs> point? Or, and the consensus is, well, no, <laughs> we're still... <laughs> We're still kind of investigating the new ways of bringing, you know, bringing diverse, diverse viewpoints into it and bringing in the underrepresented folks and underrepresented viewpoints and all that. So for, we'll, we'll keep the new Western history moniker for now, but eventually we'll, we'll, I don't know, we'll find a new new name for it or something, but for now we'll stick with new, but I, I, I can't I imagine how that conversation went. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I saw the notice for that like the day after it happened, so I didn't actually get to see it. But I'm hoping they uh, hoping they record it and put it online or something because it was it sounded pretty cool. I'm, my one of my specialties in grad school was the West, and so I've, you know I kind of have to be interested in that stuff, or I'm going to get fired. That sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be interesting to see how um, a lot of the current conversations and movements start to. Uh, play into those historical conversations and the actual history that comes out of it. So, for example, in in well, let's just say quote unquote progressive cities like San Francisco, where you're starting to see um, voices for um, the changing of names of locations and streets and places, um, starting to think through the complexity of um, of historical experiences. So rather than just uh, you know um, edifying people that we have traditionally, how do you, how do you create a complex understanding of their, their contributions to American history while not either completely um, vilifying them or putting them on a pedestal? So people like Washington or even Lincoln comes up in this conversation a lot. Um, you know, the, the advancements and the, and the progress that, or not progress, that would be progress, the advancements that um, Lincoln helped, helped us to make as well as bringing some stability back to the country. But there were also things that Lincoln did. I mean, he wasn't forced to end slavery, but it was a long path to get to that point, you know? So it's not like he was a progressive idealist who started out with the idea that I'm going to free all the slaves and it's just going to take me a little time to get there. There was, there were a lot of people and people of color who have also had a significant influence on his thoughts and bringing him around to where he eventually, where he eventually was. And I think that's an aspect of history that many people who don't study history in depth or haven't taken courses at the collegiate level or, or even at the high school level, depending on their coursework, don't necessarily realize because that is an aspect of history that's not well taught outside of academia in many cases. You know, unless you go out and are fascinated by Lincoln and want to read the biography that delves into his life and his studies and and how his views evolved and what influenced the, that evolution, you don't the general public may not have that knowledge because it's not shared broadly. And so yeah, I I agree. I think seeing how this lays out and how it changes, I don't 
I'm not sure there will be a resolution anytime soon. I think this is going to be an ongoing discussion and process, but I'm fascinated to see where it goes because it is something that we definitely need to address. You know, here in Denver, I don't know if you remember the old Stapleton Airport. Uh, Before Denver International Airport, there was Stapleton, and it was named after a significant individual in Colorado history who was also a very well-known member of the KKK. Um, And his name and the family name is is all over the city. And they recently, um, after the previous airport closed, it became a housing subdivision that they named the Stapleton Housing Subdivision. And within the last year, they had discussions with the community over, should we rename the housing subdivision to remove the Stapleton name and all that it meant to the history of Colorado, keeping in mind that the individual in question was a staunch supporter of the KKK and did have beliefs that um, are disturbing for many individuals in society at large. Um, Do we change the name or not? And the ultimate decision was, yes, we changed the name. And they opened it up to a public vote over, here are the various names that are being considered. Here's the background behind those names and, and let the public decide. And ultimately they decided to change the name. Um, The roundabout side of that also though, is they named, they changed the name of the community But street signs still say Stapleton on them because they were trying to determine who who changes the signs, who's in charge of that, who owns the signs. And so it opened up another, you know, challenge of, well, a community may change the the way that they refer to themselves, but unless they're in charge of changing the signs and the maps and all of those things, will that actually change? What's the process for having that occur? And what's the impact of that discussion? So I think it's multi-layered, and it's something that I think most people don't consider. I know I've dealt with departments of transportation, but even at that point, I don't think I thought about who owns the street signs, who pays to put the street signs up. Is it the state? Is it the city? Is it the Department of Transportation? And it varies from location to location. So that discussion of how do we address that is on so many different levels that I I think it's going to be some time until we have resolution, um, even when we do make changes. Unless someone just gets fed up, makes their own signs and goes out in the middle of the night and swaps them out. Which is (laughs) also a distinct possibility. Yeah, I've seen that happen too. (laughs) (laughs) You were having, you probably heard about this similar conversation that was happening in San Francisco around school names. Um, I think Mm -hmm. it's either 41 or 44. I'm forgetting the exact number. Um, But the school board in the midst of a pandemic Pandemic, along with trying to figure out how you were going to bring students back into the schools and create safe environments, um, decided that they were they were pushing through the the name change of forty one or forty four uh, different schools. Um, there was a bit of controversy around it. Um, some rumors that the research that they did did not involve actual historians, but just looking things up on Wikipedia to make decisions, um, <clears throat> and ultimately. Uh, because of significant backlash and not backlash because not necessarily backlash because um, there was disagreement that some of these names were problematic and needed to be changed and the impact that they had on um, students of color that went to those schools. Um, But just, you know, 
should this have been better thought out? Should there have been more voices that were heard, including historians, maybe? Um, you know, is this the right time? What is the economic cost to these schools when they're already reeling from, from a pandemic? Because obviously, if you change the name of the school, then everything that goes along with that, all of your branding, all of your uniforms, if you have uniforms, all of your, well, but you would have sports uniforms, any stationary, anything that's specifically branded to your school, all needs to be changed. So, um, there was a definitely pushback and that has been shelved for the moment. Um, there was a lot of other pushback because I believe the school board was saying that students actually wouldn't go back to school until sometime in 2022. And there was just, no. yeah, there was a, there was chaos here um, related to the school board. So uh, I'll let, I'll let more, uh, more um, research minds talk about the specifics, but I just, I was paying attention to like the larger themes that were going on, but it was, it's really interesting, like what, you know, all these conversations around changing, um, changing the names of schools, changing the names of streets or, or major areas, um, taking down monuments, like what, what is, is there a one size fits all? Is there a way to make sure that some of these things, even if they might stay up, we understand the problematic nature of it, or we use it, use, um, use some type of conversation to really educate around it. It's, but this has been going on for what, like 10, at least with the monuments for at least 10 years. Um, mm-hmm. can't remember when we first started. Gosh, I think that was back in a former life when we were actually working together, Rob. So, <laughs> well, I mean, you could take it all the way back to, you know, like the, I don't know if, if you want to go back to the far back so far as like the Enola Gay controversy and all that, but the mm-hmm. uh, same yeah. type of thing where, you know, questioning the, questioning the established storyline and, mm-hmm. um, the you know kind of the conventional wisdom or whatever you want to call it the, the the mainstream interpretation just questioning that and trying to bring new viewpoints into it that's that's tough that's tough it's tough to do especially with it's easier to do among historians who are trained to accept alternative interpretations and try to synthesize different interpretations and all that but when you've got people that aren't you know classically trained historians it's hard for them to really kind of grasp the idea that everything that I've believed in the past is wrong um, the, the, I've been in kind of a conversation with a student, um, who is very upset about interpretations of, I'm not going to give any details cause you know, <laughs> who knows who might be listening, but, uh, you know, there's, there's a, a cherished fact, quote unquote fact of American history. And, but it turns out it's actually not really a fact at all. And so it's hard, it's hard explaining to folks who aren't trained in this to understand that, you know, what you believe, you know, it, you thought it was a fact. It never was a fact. It was always a kind of an established interpretation. It was a mainstream historical view, but turns out we actually never had any proof of that. And so it's not fact, it's interpretation. And that that's very difficult for folks to, who aren't trained in this stuff to really be able to grasp very well. Especially if their worldview is different. So if your worldview is that the, the role of a national museum uh, or exhibit is to really reinforce American, you know, the American experience and what our experience was and what we did right. Do you really, you don't expect that exhibit to then highlight the impact of dropping an atomic bomb on two different cities and the, the physical, the actual like human toll that that takes because well, yes, but now you're just bleeding heart liberal and you're playing into feelings when these are the facts of it. Well, it's like, well, but are those the facts of it? Like this is, 
these are the facts that you probably learned in high school and middle school, which we all know you're just introducing students to these ideas. So you don't really dive deep into historiography, into like historical debate. It's more, this is the information you need to know because you need to pass this exam at the end of the year. So um, yeah. And and once you get into people's identities being tied up in, in these concepts, I mean, it gets even more difficult because now you're dealing with with change and the, the way the brain reacts to change and like creating new neural path. I'm not going to geek out on brain science and neural pathways, but I've been learning a lot about <laughs> Oh no, this. here we go down that rabbit yeah. hole. No, I know. It's just, it's interesting the way that <laughs> you can't unlearn things. The only thing you can do is create new ways of understanding, which takes time to <clears throat> reinforce those new ways of understanding things so that they overpower the old ways of understanding. It's really, it's the geekiest thing ever. Let's never talk about this again, ever. <laughs> Well, I think it is important, though, to note, you you brought up a great point. People have set beliefs based on what they've learned in the past, whether or not they've learned the entirety of the past and the history and the points being made. That's where the question arises, right? You brought it up, you know, when we're teaching high school, junior high, elementary school, it's kind of a mad dash to get as much history in as humanly possible over the course of however long you have your students and can keep their attention span. And you don't delve into all of the nooks and crannies of that history. And I know a lot of individuals think that history is set. It's truth. It's fact. There's no changing it. It is what it is, period. Why are we still studying this? Why are there still ideas coming around that are different than what you've heard in the past. I I don't think a lot of individuals realize that history is ever evolving and our understanding of history is ever evolving. And you never know when more information is going to come to light that you didn't have to be able to factor into your evaluation or understanding of the past in the previously. And now you have a new piece of information or you have a new viewpoint because you have spoken to a group that you have never spoken to before about events that and that you thought you knew, but now you have them from another viewpoint and you can say, oh, that really significantly changes the way that I saw this piece of history because now I can see it not only from the viewpoint of side A, now I have side B or side C or D that can add in and flesh out and change the way that we view the past. And I think a lot of people that aren't trained in history or don't have a love of history and haven't set set aside time to sit down and really investigate, I don't think they necessarily understand that aspect of the field. And so it's, this isn't physics. It's not straightforward. There's not a law that says A plus B equals C. This is constantly evolving based on the information that we have and how you look at life, right? If, if you come from me and I'm from Colorado, we were talking about regional differences. I will view something differently than someone from New York or California or Alaska or Hawaii because my view has been shaped by the life that I've led. And so understanding that and how that factors into the way that people understand history and its significance and those events in the past and what really calls to them as being significant, it's going to be different for every individual. And we have to understand that and also understand that we have to keep an open mind. We have to be open to change. It's not 
black and white. There are so many shades of gray in the entire rainbow out there for us to really understand the study of history that you don't just read the book, put it on the shelf and say goodbye to it. You think about it later on, like when you were speaking about Point Reyes, you read the book and it factored into something else and how we view the landscape and how we view the resources and how that's changed. And I just want to plug since I had forgotten what book it was. (laughs) (laughs) And it's the paradox of preservation uh, by Laura Alice. I'm holding it up to the camera as if that's going to be useful to the people listening (laughs) to this podcast. Yes. It's a very nice cover, everybody. I swear. (laughs) But yeah, yeah. I want to make sure I don't. (laughs) Yeah, refer to the blurb for the recommendation. Yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll, I'll yeah, I'll put, I'll we'll put the, the link below. I'll put the link. Yeah, exactly. I'll do the there typical podcast thing. We'll put the link, the link in the show notes. Yeah. Good. I think right. that's, I like how you said that. That's, that's one of the challenges of history, right? Because we, history is the story of people, but we have a different expectation. We have an expectation of what stories are based on stories that we tell, which is, consistency of human behavior, which is a natural trajectory, which is a point to things. And, you know, not to get all nihilistic on us, but history and people are not that clear cut. People are complex. Events don't just follow a modernist upward and onward trajectory of things constantly getting better and building on things, um, which is one of the dangers that we have in this country too, right? Like it's very easy to think, oh, we're a democracy and nothing can ever change that. We fought to get here. Well, also got to fight to hold on to it because you can see forces that might be trying to take that away. So, um, but that whole idea that it's of history as a story, it is a story, but the historians use the raw data to create, create an understanding of that story, but it's not the same as a story that an author might write that you read. And there's all the characters have consistency. So you know that this person is good and they might've done one bad thing, but they're good at heart. It's like people aren't necessarily like that. Um, I mean, there might be people that are, totally terrible like Matt Gates, but there aren't people that are like 100% good, you know? <laughs> well, I like the idea, the the thought of look, comparing it to a novel. You're right. It, but think about it. If you wrote the novel, if you lived in Germany, or you wrote the novel, if you lived in England, or you wrote the novel, if you lived in Albuquerque, the way that you write those individuals and the way that they saw the world is going to be different. And that's what we have to take into account. When we look at history, if we're looking at it from the lens that we're familiar with, it's going to be a different story than if you look at it from the lens of another country or another community or another culture. It's going to be different. And the facts are going to, they may not change, but the way those facts are interpreted and the significance of those facts may change. And comparing it to that novel, yeah, think about a translated novel if you change it, if you write it in English and then you translate it to Spanish and French or uh, Japanese or Chinese, you know, the nuances, those nuances might be lost because that translation, there's always a little bit of difference in that translation. And history is the same way. There's always that little bit of difference based on the viewpoints you're coming from. Yeah. I decided that I wanted to um, go back. I, I used to love reading Kafka and I decided, Oh, let's go back and read Kafka. So like I, I dove into um, America, but um, being the, the nerd that I am, I didn't start with the start of the book. I started with the author notes. Um, and there was a lot of interesting points about translation and context. And I 
I'm going to get this wrong, but I believe he wrote it in German, but then it would have been translated into also Czech and into English. And the cadence of the way that it was written in German and the, the, the tone that he took in some of the words with the translations, it became changed or lost and it didn't maintain the nuances. Um, and from a different perspective, I think, cause I was a history an English major as well, undergrad and this, um, so, you know, the, the classic, uh, epic poem Beowulf, or I always pronounce that wrong. Beowulf. <laughs> it's not my, my forte. Um, there was a, a great book that was written in this had to have been the nineties. Um, and it was called Grendel and it was written from the perspective of Grendel instead. So exactly what you said, whose perspective, they're the same events, but whose interpretation are you getting? Whose experience and, and how do they interpret that experience? That's what makes history fun though. Yeah. You know, it, that's what makes it engaging. That makes, that's what makes you want to get up in the morning and do more research or talk to more people or really sit down and evaluate what you've learned because looking at it from all of those different viewpoints makes it come alive in a way that I think if you don't take those into account, I understand people that say history is just names and dates. It's not all that fun. It's not all that great. Why do I, why do I study it? Well, it's not names and dates. Those names are people and those dates are significant events to those people and understanding how they're interpreted. That's what makes history come alive. That's what makes it fascinating, at least to me. I think that's the, I, I'm a big proponent of keeping the people in history because that's what really brings it to the forefront in my mind is understanding they're people just like you and I were. They lived in a different time during different events and how they faced the world, the struggles they had, and how it shaped the world that we live in today. That's where the fascination comes into me. But I'm also an anthropologist, so that probably <laughs> factors in as well. Well, yeah. And I mean, yeah, when I'm teaching capstone courses for the grad program, I always drive students nuts because I always ask them, so what? Like when they start identifying topics and it's like, okay, that's great. So what? And it's, you know, it's a brusque way of getting them to think more deeply about why does it matter? Why is it significant? And usually the, so what usually comes down to how it affects the people, you know, why is it significant to the people that were involved? Why is it significant to people that were on the periphery of this event? Why is it significant to people reading about it a hundred years later? Why, why do people care about this thing? So, so what, who cares? Well, the people care. And so it, it always does have to come down to why does it matter to, to people? Knowledge for knowledge's sake is nice, but there has to be, you know, there, it has to be relevant. It has to be uh, significant. And that's, that's, I mean, that's usually the hardest part of doing historical research is how do I make people care about this? You know, I wrote my entire dissertation wondering how am I going to get people to care about this? But that's what we all have to do. You have to, you have to get people to care about it or else no one's ever going to read it. It's not going to make any difference. You always have to make it appeal to people, relevant to people. And that's my, one of my uh, doctoral dissertation committee members, he he's he's the one that started the so what thing he drove me insane but every time i talked to him he's like all right so what <laughs> <laughs> i don't know <laughs> but eventually you eventually it clicks i had a professor that did something similar 
Yeah. There always has to be someone on your committee that does that or, mm-hmm. or it's just too easy. <laughs> There's always got to be someone that's, that's smacking you around. One of my, um, it, one of my favorite professors who became like longtime friend. Um, he didn't take the, the, so the, so what path, but he said something uh, in one of my first history classes with him that really stuck. Um, it was like, it, what he said was my job isn't to, make you remember specific dates. Um, my job is to help you to understand the larger themes and how things work. You can look up a date. You don't, you don't need to memorize, unless it's like a really significant event that everybody should know. You don't need to memorize specific dates. But what I need you to know is why things happened and how they happened so that you have a big context. So you don't need to know all of the, all of the wars in World War II, for example, unless you want to be a World War II historian and if you want to focus in specifically on military victories. But what you need to know is the larger points about why and how it started, who was involved, the trajectory of the war and what happened and the ramifications of what happened. So it's put into context and you understand bigger themes. And that always stuck with me. I think maybe because it was an excuse never to memorize dates, but maybe not. (laughs) I... I've I've had some some of my students ask me why I don't pound on dates so much and in a similar manner that I said was understanding dates is important don't get me wrong like you said certain dates stand out and are significant and should always be remembered if you're studying certain events but to me it's more important that you understand the order that they came in and understanding what came before and what came after and understanding that overarching story that you were telling talking about how do they factor in? What what's their significance? If you know, point, event A happened. If you skip event B, do you have the same information for event C? You know, you understanding the flow and how time evolved and the events that took place over those eras. That's the important part. You, if I'm going to ask you to tell me the exact day, month, and year. That's that's less interesting to me. That's less something that I want to keep in my brain for the rest of time. But if I want to know that you discovered the atom before you dropped the atom bomb, that's kind of significant. You know, that's the order of those events factors into how we understand them and how they actually occurred. Um, yeah. So yeah, I agree. I think the names and dates and places are great, but only when they're in a larger larger concept. Yeah. Are you testing recall or are you testing higher level understanding? So. Exactly. Yeah. We've got Wikipedia for all those names. <laughs> exactly. Dates exactly. And, and all of that. So. have Wikipedia historians. Yeah. So it's basically, yep. okay. So we can, we can, we can outsource all of the facts, quote unquote, to databases like Wikipedia. What do historians do though, that Wikipedia can't do? And that's where we make those connections. We, uh, you know, the Wikipedia entry might try to try to make connections for us, but you know, we all know the weaknesses of Wikipedia when it comes to interpretations and all of that, but uh, that's basic. And, and so that's one of the things that I've been kind of tinkering with when trying to get kind of the point across to students about how history is not about the study of facts. It's about the interpretation of an incomplete set of facts and how do we make sense of the facts that we have with the realization that we don't have all of the facts that are required to say definitively why something happened the way it did. That's what the historians are for is to kind of is, is putting all the various facts together in a way that makes sense. And Wikipedia, 
you know, for all the millions of links that they've got on there, it's basically you're clicking from link to link to link to try to trace something. But who knows if you're actually if it's actually going in a sensible order, if you're just clicking links randomly, you need people that are trained in this stuff to actually make sense of all of it and try to guide you from one thing to the next to figure out how things happen, how things are related, how things caused other things. And that's what the historians are for. And I'm, I'm hoping that Wikipedia will never get good enough to replace us. For that. <laughs> exactly. Um, At least not in our lifetimes, right? <laughs> right. Just, just not until I retire. If I ever do. Right. <laughs> I need to grab my charger because my, I just noticed I got a notification that my computer is going to die. Okay. Good times. All right. (laughs) Ah, the joys of teleworking. (laughs) I'm glad school's back in. We quickly had to work out the routine of who's going to let the dogs out when they start to howl. (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) Right. What's your schedule? Yeah. Who can run to the door and let the door? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When the when the um, Amazon delivery or the you know, yeah. any, any type of delivery rings, so who's going to get the door. Um, mm-hmm. When the dog walker shows up, who lets the dog out? Ooh, mm-hmm. yeah. oh, oh. <laughs> what a terrible nineties oh. reference, but we're back in, oh. we're back in the, uh... we are historians, you know, we have to, we have to pull on even the most recent past. Exactly. Right. And we're, we're back to the way that, we can. Uh, yeah, pop culture trends and, and recycling of certain things or re, re, repurposing of certain things. The nineties are back in, in full, uh, glory yeah mm-hmm. in full glory the way that the 80s were were back kind of in the early two to mid 2000s um 90s are where it's at right now music music influence uh fashion it's all 90s right now see i don't know if i should be as i i, I can't determine whether or not i'm glad that the 80s fashion came back or the 90s fashion came back or that i just hope that both of them go back away again <laughs> um i remember them the first time around i don't need to to relive them at this age in my life and attempting that whole fashion situation. <laughs> I don't need Seems... more flannel. No, you know, no. well, I live in Colorado. So flannel does have to be part of, part of the, the wardrobe. It's necessary. We go to the mountains a lot. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been interesting. I will say I've loved teleworking. I know a lot of people don't feel that way, but I've loved to see what all we can do with technology and actually push the limits to make sure that we still get our work done and yet can still address who gets the dogs mm-hmm. and, and all of that. I think, I don't know. I think maybe it's a, the historian in me that I don't mind being somewhat sequestered by myself doing research and, and the like, <laughs> I, I somewhat enjoy that. So I know a lot of individuals have, have come away from the pandemic going, I want to be with people. I'm sitting here going, I'm actually comfortable working from home. Do you need me in the office? Is that, is that necessary? Can I continue on using technology and, you know, my coffee pot? That would be great. <laughs> I hadn't really thought about the isolating training that we go through in grad school. We, we've kind of been training for this our whole act, our whole professional careers, really. Now it's, it's our true. time. We, we win. See, I'm on the opposite end, which is probably why I never finished the PhD. Oh, <laughs> there's a there's a great article in um, the Atlantic. I think it was last week or the week before, and the writer actually interviewed two colleagues um, that both write for the Atlantic. One is a self proclaimed extrovert, and the other a self proclaimed introvert. And it was a really, it's actually really interesting. Um, I was talking to to um, Aaron, my my fiance, and we were uh, 
I was like, it's almost like they interviewed the two of us for this, but changed the names because like, <laughs> it was just, it's so interesting. But what, it, what it really comes down to is we're reading it because we're doing some change leadership um, work at our organization. And it's the idea that we're not all going to, we're not all experiencing this the same. We're not all going to come out of this the same and have the same level of, of comfort with where we need to go once things open back up. Um, so the core of what we're trying to get at wasn't that one approach was right and one was wrong or that there is a there should be a consistent experience. It was more empathy, like understanding and being able to give space to people um, to understand that just because people are introverts, it doesn't necessarily mean that they've really loved the last year. Um, there are a lot of stress factors that even introverts went through during shelter in place and being isolated from from people because just because you're an introvert doesn't mean that you uh, – it doesn't mean you're a hermit, you know? So mm -hmm. it's a, it's this larger understanding of, you know, being able to actually think through somebody else's experiences, especially as organizations decide to open up and, and say, Oh, we're going to open up the offices and bring everybody back. Well, if you want to really be considerate of mental health, how are you going to be a little bit flexible with when you bring people back and who comes back when? Well, and flexible also, if they come back and then, for some unforeseen reason, it becomes uncomfortable for them. What's the flexibility with allowing them to alter that schedule um, to a degree that makes them more comfortable? Still allows work to be done in the fact the way that you want it to be done, but does have that flexibility and that empathy with, oh, I thought I would be okay. I'm here. I'm not okay. I need to change this. You know, how can we deal with that? You know, I, I have several colleagues that they can't wait to get back into the office. And as we've started to kind of open up a little bit, we have percentages of people that can go in and, and those that can't. And there's a few people that they, I want to be in the office, even if no one's there. I do work. I do my work better in the office. And, you know, I think kind of as you were saying, Rob, we've trained our whole career for this. I can do my work wherever plop me down with a research source and a pen and a piece of paper. And if necessary these days, a computer and a phone and I can get it done because we've trained ourselves to be able to do that because we have, you know, we've had to have those situations where you go into the archive and it's you, a piece of paper, a pencil and a dull light sitting in the back corner. And you're the only one that's around for hours on end at the same time, it's nice to come around, like you were saying, and see people and faces and smiles and have that interaction. I think it's going to be an interesting aspect to our more modern history to see how we come out as a world, as societies um, at the end of this and yeah. how it changes what we do. Yeah, I've been kind of thinking about it from kind of the historical perspective. And I, for my dissertation research, I dabbled a little bit into like business history and business historiography and all that. So it is curious to think about um, how how work patterns are going to change as a result of this. And I've been kind of wondering if this is going to be, as the workforce becomes more decentralized, more spread out, not everyone's going to a, a building anymore. That is, I mean, the whole idea of having a large workforce go to a building to do their work has been kind of at the center of American business since the, I don't know, the 1850s, maybe even earlier in some places. So, but if we've got a situation now where you don't have people all going to a specific building to do work, 
what does that mean for human relationships? What is it kind of like what we've been saying here, but what does it mean for how, how do, how is business, how are businesses going to operate? How are, how is the workforce going to, I mean, is this going to have a dramatic effect? I mean, we've already seen that like the demise of unions and all of that, but is this going to kind of further, you know, kill that because there's people aren't going to be in the same place anymore. And, so it will be interesting from a historical perspective to just see what are the changes that are going to come out of this pandemic. Um, is this going to be, you know, on the one hand, we're going to see huge changes in people going to work in the same place, but we're also, is this kind of also, you know, technology reaching the potential that it never reached before? Because we've, we do, we have the ability to do that only because of the technology that's in place now for people to work remote. And so, you know, what does that mean from a technological perspective? What types of changes in, you know, internet consumption, internet use, there's going to be kind of, I mean, this, this is going to open up a whole bunch of questions for business historians going forward. What is this going to mean for, and then from a broader cultural and anthropological perspective, yeah, how are people going to interact with each other? How are they going to talk to each other? Um, because, yeah, I find myself, we, we were talking off mic earlier about people using Teams and all of that. That's my primary means of communication with my people at work now, too, is just communicating in chat threads on Teams. Very rarely do we actually, like, call each other anymore. It's all just chat threads. <laughs> and that's that creates kind of a different dynamic. And so it will be interesting to see what the effects of that kind of long term are on um, a variety of historical fields, I suppose. Well, you pointed yeah. to like three different dissertations that somebody can write 20 years from now. So that's Yeah, you're welcome, world. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and see, I look at it also because I deal with a lot of structures. I look at it and say, look at downtown built development mm -hmm. and the landscape of, of buildings that we have throughout the country that was built specifically for all of the individuals to come to work in one place together. Everyone have their own space to be able to sit down. How is that going to change the landscape of our cities and and the communities that we live in, are those buildings going to remain? Are they going to be still office buildings? Or are they going to change? Are they potentially going to be adaptively reused into housing for communities? Are they going to be torn down? You know, are you going to see more green space? Yeah, I look at it from that side too. I think the technology and the interactions with people, but then also the interactions with the landscape mm -hmm. and how that's going to change. And also, are we going to see jobs open up to where we sit in significantly different locations from our coworkers? You know, teaching as we do, we generally sit in farther locations than, um, than most because we teach online. But for those individuals that had been living in a specific location because that's where their job was centrally located, does it open the door for them to move elsewhere or maybe move to a location that they always wanted to live but could never find a job in because now they can telework and and do that job from this new location. How is that going to change the way we see the patterns of life from our locational mm -hmm. positions? You know, This is why I love historians and history because you both approach it from two different angles but diff through different lenses of history. And my my thought pattern, because I'm obsessed with with politics and international order to an annoying extent, um, paying a lot of attention to, are we creating a two-tiered world? What is the, not only the economic impact, but also the human impact of the epidemic going to be on different countries? I mean, we can already see what's happening in India or even in countries in Africa where they don't have access to vaccines or even, 
even quality healthcare. So what happens when the international international community, meaning mostly Westerners and probably China, um, decide who can travel um, because of their vaccination cards? Um, we are, there were already rumors that China was only going to allow tourists into China um, and allow travel within China if uh, somebody received a Chinese-produced vaccine. So, so what, how does this change the international order, but also the ability of humans to, to move and travel? Because since the dawn of nation states, we've seen the ability, I mean, not everybody always had the ability to move because it, they had to have the resources and the ability to do it anyway, but but it was much more free without con- like actual um, like legal constraints and, and political constraints at that point. And then as the nation states rose, now you have national boundaries, now you have national laws to regulate who comes in, who goes out and who gets access to what land. And is it going to continue that trajectory? It's now you still have the ability to move, but only a certain class of people and only a certain number of people who have access to certain resources are going to be able to continue to travel and and explore the world. It's 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 interesting where these conversations about like vaccinations and, and travel and um, vac- vaccine passports are going because there's a lot with so much focus on like equity and diversity right now. Those conversations are really problematic because of how they're closing off opportunities to people. It's going to be an interesting new world. It is. It makes you almost want to go back and go back to school and study further and do a new dissertation later on. <laughs> when we're a little bit farther down the road and can look back on this time. Yep. Or just Maybe when I'm one. in my eighties, we'll think about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just feel bad for future historians. They have to try to navigate Twitter or something to figure out, oh. <laughs> to find all those sources. That's good. That oh. just sounds miserable. <laughs> that I hadn't thought about that. Oh my goodness! Yeah, when you're looking for we're primary in the midst sources, of it now, but yeah. looking at it as a resource uh, moving forward, that's going to be a whole. That's yes, that was going to be a very significant challenge for future historians to tackle. Yeah, because more power to them. Yeah, we're not doing Facebook we're not doing posts. letters, no letters or diaries anymore. Now it's all Instagram and Twitter, and so you'd have to navigate feeds and on the one hand i guess it makes it easier to find you know the little guy out there to see what that person was thinking when and well at least what they were writing but yeah also navigating all of the junk to find <laughs> the right person oh that just doesn't sound fun authenticity no. is that their their actual views um are we missing context and they're really being super sarcastic uh, you know, all right. of, all of that, like, it's going to be, it's, uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting to figure out how to use these sources or do, at some point, do you just say, you know, that was a point in time in history where people were just too messed up using social media. We're not taking any of that into account. <laughs> <laughs> well, right, and the other side of that coin is, is right. Has it been hacked? Yeah. Is it actually the individual writing or is it someone writing on their behalf mm-hmm. and it's been altered? You know, that that's, I think technology and the ability to understand technology is going to be a key factor for really any field moving forward, but especially even historians to understand where sources originate and whether or not they've been corrupted. And, and that type of situation I think is going to be, I almost feel like we're going to end up having to have a double degree in history and computer science or technology of some sort um, when we move into the field of using the technological resources and references that we have today 
in future generations. It definitely will require some, it's going to require technical literacy. It's going to require cultural literacy because, you know, in 50 years, the memes that we're passing around <laughs> in Facebook today are going to be utterly meaningless to somebody in the future. It's like SpongeBob doing what? What does that mean? And- Who is Ben Affleck and why do we care that he let somebody on a dating app know that it was really him? I don't know if you guys have paid attention to that one, but I haven't seen that one. Oh, but- it was a, yeah, it was a dating app. And uh, the, the woman, uh, I think she was a TikTok star or something. So they were, they were both on this dating app and uh, she basically uh, the equivalent of unfriended him or like unfollowed him. And he sent her a video that was like, no, it's really me. And like, she shared this video online. It's absolutely ridiculous, but it's super funny. But who's going to care in 20 years? <laughs> right. In 50 Unless years, that's not going to make any sense to anybody. Our next president. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and then the flip side of it with like Twitter and all of that is that since a lot of people are using anonymous Twitter handles, you know, I'm going to, you know, qu- this this quote from Hillary Clinton's elbow or whatever the, the person's <laughs> hand, Twitter handle is, that's going to be utterly ridiculous because <laughs> they're not going to be able to verify all the time who actually was writing it. So they're going to have to go by whatever ali- Twitter alias. Oh I don't, gosh. I don't, I'm. I don't envy those folks. I'll, I'll admire them for slogging through it, but poof, boy. This whole I, podcast I, um, will create the um, the learning objectives for your future cutting edge uh, historical <laughs> literacy slash digital literacy uh, program that you're going that's to right. create and is going to be a there huge hit. That's right. I, I got to transcribe this whole thing here. Plan ahead. Yeah. So start, start pulling together curriculum now. You can mm-hmm. start to see the holes of where, where we'll need to have new skill sets and, That's right. and call pull in those professionals from the other areas to say, what exactly are we doing right? And what are we doing wrong? And how we understand these resources. Yeah. How can historians verify IP addresses so that we know that we're getting authentic content from the right user or the right creator? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Module and five. Can it be done in the, in the future versus in the present? Yeah. Oh, good point. Yep. Yeah, because as technology becomes obsolete, will we even be able to access those things? Mm-hmm. Oh God! I just remember playing Oregon Trail on those really big floppies, mm-hmm. floppy disks that were the size of the computers now mm-hmm. that we have. You know, right? Yeah, my phone are... is smaller than that thing was. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, and I, you know, students that don't understand that the little save icon was a three and a half floppy, like that. It literally was the disk you saved to. You know, um. Watching how technology has changed the field, you know, I I look back on it now and go, I remember MS DOS. I remember learning how to read and write those, you know. And now you tell me I have to do something similar, and I just look at you with this blank face, going, No, no, <laughs> that's not going to happen. But thank you for thinking of me. That's a great <laughs> idea on your part. Uh, my brain will not, you know, step into that particular role. You have a lot but, more faith in my abilities than I do. <laughs> exactly. You know, I, I can I can handle printers, scanners, cameras, that type of thing. But if you ask me to write or even figure out if an IP address is real, I will give you that blank stare and say, hi, have you met me? My degree's in history. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Technology and I are not the best of friends, although I love it. You know, yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting how the field evolves. Um because 
those individuals in the future that are looking for those primary sources, their primary sources are going to be very different than the ones that we've used in the past. Yeah, digital history is going to be a very tricky um, topic to navigate uh, going forward. I've I've been thinking for a long time it'd be good to have a digital history class like in the grad program or something, but um, besides the normal logistics of, of creating a new course, there's just the additional how do we do that? How to, you know, module five, Twitter deciphering. It, I don't know how that's going to work. And that just, uh, it, it's going to require a whole lot of subject matter expertise that I don't have. And I'm not sure where to find that expertise. So at, that, at least right now, you know, once you figure yeah. this out and in a hundred years, when your brain is living in a jar directly connected to whatever passes for a computer <laughs> at that point, and your voice is synthesized to teach those lectures, you're going to know all of this stuff and you're going to be a great teacher. Fair enough. Okay. That's the goal. (laughs) Uh, The future of history and the future of teaching. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, we've been talking for over an hour now. (laughs) We are historians. Yeah, that's right. We'll talk and talk until uh, until it gets... Well, yeah, Jen, these um, these 10 to 15 minute catch-up conversations (laughs) have, uh, have a way of just turning into some of the best conversations ever, but um, I think all of them have reached or exceeded an hour at this point. <laughs> yeah. We're yeah. The five to 10 minute thing that we're not good at that. <laughs> yeah. And that's yeah I, I mean, I always look at it when I think about, we always claim for our meetings for work, we're going to have a, a 15 minute intro to we're going to talk about this later which is generally what happens with the 15 minute intro into we're going to talk about it later ends up being a two hour intro into we're going to talk about it later and then devolves into what were we going to talk about again? Right. How is that going to go? Mm-hmm. So, but then again, I work with a lot of engineers. So a lot of it just kind of, I, I have to sit down and say, walk me through the steps that you just took to get from point A to point B as though I don't have a degree in engineering and I can't speak your language. Because that guess would what? Be... I don't. Exactly. <laughs> but I think that's, it's kind of like getting multiple viewpoints on history, right? You have multiple viewpoints on the same project from people that are trained completely different ways and you never know what the outcome is going to be. Mm-hmm. Which is great because people are bringing perspectives you never thought of. So then then the question is, how do you synthesize those? Because you're probably, so if you just have an engineer or somebody who's used to creating technology, who's like, I want to create this app. And then you have an anthropologist come in and it's like, well, you do realize that you're creating that app from a very Western-centric viewpoint that replicates the, the cultural values for you. But is this going to be one, accessible or understandable by people in China or on the continent and different countries in Africa? And what is your responsibility to actually make it accessible to other cultures? Because are you just simply replicating a Western culture and creating a homogenous like world culture that's based on Western technology? So being able to bring all those things in can hopefully give us better solutions, but it can also just create a lot of frustration. <laughs> yeah. You learn a lot. You do. That's right. Whether or not sits in your brain and you know sinks in that's a whole different discussion and multiple pots of coffee required but (laughs) you're exposed to a lot hopefully you'll learn some of it yes yep and usually if you're lucky you can turn around and use it on the next project and it becomes useful 
Mm-hmm. It's not just kind of a one-off type situation. You learn and incorporate it. And next time around when the question arises, maybe you think about it a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. And your answer is shaped differently. At least that's the ultimate hope. Yes. That's, that's the hope. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think Rob should go to sleep. <laughs> it's getting late. So um, <laughs> yeah, it is late yeah. for Rob for sure. So thank you for joining us today, uh, Jen. Thank you for having me. It's been a really good time talking with everyone. Thank you for sure. And thank you all for joining us today. This episode appears on the Working Historians podcast feed, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Lyceum, Podbean, or whatever else you prefer. That way you won't miss any episodes and you'll continue to hear about all the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives. If you have any questions or comments for this or any of our other podcasts, please send us a message to workinghistorians at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at workinghistorians and on Twitter at workhistorians. For Jen Bryant and Jimmy Fennessy, I'm Rob Denning. Take care of yourselves and each other.